this is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Within a lot of the abduction experiences, you've talked already about the commonalities and the patterns, you know, the humanoid form, the the language at times, the clothing, the advanced technology. But what about the other side of that where messages seem very mixed? Sometimes we're hearing, you know, messages of, of love and light. Sometimes it's, yeah. it's pretty horrifying experiences, abductions against our will. You mentioned the brothers who are taken on board, as many claim to have been. Some claim to have been taken on tours of, of galaxies and, you know, the universe at large mm-hmm. and then and then return to where they were. What does this point to for you that they're having a variety of different experiences with a variety of different beings? Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, there is variation. And, and I really tried to capture that in this this study as well um and and i I love whitley streber's encounter because he saw four different types in his same encounter that he wrote about in his 1987 book communion where there's these like battle droid type machines then there's the stocky ones that he referred to as sort of guards that would lead him around and then there was a a more human-like one and then there was this more mantis like one and and that could be temporal variation as we talked about earlier it could be the continuation of geographic variation, like what exists today among Sub-Saharan Africans, Native Americans, um, Indigenous Australians, etc. Maybe that continues into the future. It could be AI versus biological or some combination of those, which seems to be indicated in that in other case studies too. But I, I, I often default back to, because it's currently our best source of information for this, the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free study that I mentioned earlier, the experiencer study, all of these different contact modalities, um, because surveys are are wrought with methodological issues, and, and you you can't dismiss that, you can't get around it, and especially when you're talking about something with high strangeness like the UFO phenomenon, is your survey slightly less trusty because of that? Probably, but it it is a good study. It spans many different language groups. They, they put these surveys out in a number of different uh, languages and they had upwards of 4,000 individuals. I was told by Ray Hernandez that it's closer to 6,000 now. So it's continuing to grow. Their database is getting stronger. So within that, um, as I mentioned, the majority of beings that are seen are human. And then it's followed by the short grays, the tall grays. And it's only 5% that are described as something other than a human form. We have hybrids in there too, but if it's a hybrid of a human and a a different kind of human, then it's still a a hominin, as we would call it. But then 5% are these more mantis-like reptilian types. So it's really a a very small percentage. We can't throw those out. They're not all outliers. Something happened. Uh, We need to take those into account. But I I think for the purposes of of this research, um, just the fact that the top four categories are a type of hominin in, in and of itself is informative. 
and it's it's a good starting point. And, the, and these stats are are very useful for uh, looking for patterns. Like I mentioned, the ones who interacted with the more human type forms had more positive experiences. The ones that interacted with ones that are different, such as the reptilians, the the insectoids, were much less positive. Um, and then there's personal variation. What happened to them? If they get taken on a ship and shown all these cool technologies as young children, yeah, they're going to love that. If they have something shoved up their butt and fetuses extracted from them, they're not going to like that very much. But even some who do, actually, like I talk about Jerry, case of Jerry, one of John Mack's patients in my book, she hated everything that happened to her throughout her life, but eventually realized that she was contributing to something really big and really important. And that she was okay with that. She she realized she was a part, a small part of something much bigger. And it it allowed her to sort of uh, conceptualize what had been happening to her and, and come to grips with it, essentially. And that plays into the ethical question we were talking about earlier, too. So I, I think to answer your question, it, it's probably multifaceted, but most likely has to do with the types of beings, the personality of the individual contact, your abductee. And uh, how different it was, you know, like if you came to the US, I'd show you around Montana, we'd have some beers, it'd, it'd be somewhat similar to where you live. You go to a, a visit a remote tribe in the Amazon, nobody speaks English, they're shooting bows and arrows as their highest form of technology. There's culture shock there. Even if you go willingly, and you know, it's gonna be different, you still feel that culture shock. So I think there's a culture shock aspect to this too. Or the ones with far more advanced technology, the big eyes always come up, just this deep, uh, haunting pupils of these beings that, you know, that fill the whole eye, the, the sclera, the white parts, almost not visible. That seems to be memorable for people. Some enjoy it because they see this consciousness, the eyes, the window to the soul, so to speak. Others are completely freaked out by it. They can't even look at them in the eyes because it's just too much. It's too different. So I think there's a lot of things at play, but um, I think mostly it comes down to the individual, their experience and the type of being that, that they encountered. In your research, did you see any trend that suggested abduction cases are on any kind of upwards trajectory or on the decline, or is it somewhere in the middle? That's a great question. Um, no, I, I didn't really look at that. I, I don't even know if I can offer an answer because I didn't... Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't a part of the research, I guess, but it's an important question. And it seems like something I probably should have added in the introduction or conclusions because yeah, it would be interesting to know, like, are we having more of these now? Uh, if if they happen more at certain points in the past, why? What was it about that time? Um, so no, maybe that'll be the next book. I don't know. I think discussing this on the podcast in the past, I think it was myself and Dan, we mentioned that in the past, abduction cases like Betty and Barney Hill and Calvin Parker, Travis Walton, Terry Lovelace, they stuck around because there was no social media. So if these things yeah. are picked up in newsletters or books, then they were the few cases that made it into the mainstream and they've stuck in that myth and lore. There's a romantic notion with them, whereas... Yeah. People can go online now and any number of people on a daily basis on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok could claim to have been abducted and you're probably <laughs> just less likely to see it because it's, it's 2022 yeah. and yeah, 140 really character point. tweet is a lot less personable than a 40 or 50 year old story. And I just wonder, is it just a modern thing that claims of abductions are much harder for people en masse to stomach than, than ones that maybe happened a longer time ago? 
Yeah, that's a really good observation and point. And I, I think there's a couple of things going on there too, maybe where, yeah, you're right. We can report it more, but then it also gets lost easier. Um, are they happening more? Are they just being seen more? Um, what, what I've found is a lot of people who seemingly shouldn't have an interest in this phenomenon, but do eventually it comes out, they had an experience and they're trying to figure it out without really letting people, there's a lot of people, um, before, um, sorry, I just have something else I wanted to throw in. To this. No, no, go for it. Otherwise, um, there were a lot of people on Twitter. You, you've been a part of this group, you know, as, as long as I have, um, probably longer actually. And they, they were, they're very much involved with like the, the whole conversation. And then eventually you find out they were abducted, you know, they yeah. had this experience and, and, and that's, that's cool. I, I'm jealous. You know, I never have, I've never even seen a freaking weird light in the sky or anything. I thought I almost saw one recently and it turns out it was just a plane and it's very disappointing. Um, but then I also wonder too, if it's, if it's acceptance, if there's a recent trend because of the recent trend toward uh, broad-based acknowledgement of the reality of the UFO phenomenon that now people feel more comfortable. And, and that's a big part of what I was trying to do with this last book is continue that, continue to move beyond the Tic Tac. Yeah, pilots seeing shit, awesome. That's great. And we've learned a lot about that and it's really pushed the conversation forward. But people have been being abducted for potentially tens of thousands of years and still are and have been in recent times. We sh- And it, it's part of the same phenomenon, undoubtedly. Uh, so we need to be talking about that, too. And I actually dedicated my book to the brave people who come out and tell their story. And especially those who were telling their story before UFOs were even real, which wasn't that long ago. Um, but a, a friend of mine who I, I wrote about his experience, Ellis Martin, in the book uh, as part of the, the Whitley Strieber discussion, um, it, he wrote me, he read the book, I sent him a copy cause I appreciated him telling his story to me. Uh, and he was like, finally, you know, after 40 years, this is so validating to see my experience being written about my story told. Um, and, and I think that's the case for a lot of these people They they're trying to figure it out. And he told me, you know, he was subjected to these anal probes. And one of the things that really helped him come to grips with it was thinking of them as future humans. You could kind of conceptualize them as human doctors, um, future human doctors in the same way we conceptualize modern human doctors, but it pissed him off way more to think of them as these beings from a different planet who came here and picked them up and did all of these things to them. Like that, that was more violating in his mind. And it doesn't matter what we think about objectively. It's that person's experience that matters. And I think if we can get more people talking about this and, and have an informed conversation without the stigma and shame that has been forced upon this topic for 70 years, we can really start to grow and learn and, and see more patterns, more patterns become apparent and more data is available. And yeah, we still need to be judicious with vetting these. We still need to make sure it's not just somebody telling a story or they'd have some alternative agenda that we're not aware of. Those things still need to be uh, taken into consideration, but it, I, I hope that's the case. You know, I hope more people are telling their story and feeling comfortable about telling their story in this new climate that's grown up around the UFO phenomenon. 
as much as we've got that new climate, there's still a block and a stigma for many. The the X-Files, the green little men, all that kind of stuff is still there for, for much of the general public en masse when the subject is discussed. I know here in the UK, I've not spoken to any of my colleagues at work about the subject who have heard about what's going on in the US in terms of congressional hearings and the media yeah. reporting being a lot more. It just doesn't reach over here in any way, shape or form oh, unless you've got an bad. interest. Yeah, yeah, hopefully more of them listen to this podcast and they would know a little bit more about it. Or other yeah. podcasts are available, reading books. No, like just, just yours. Yours, yeah, yours just, is just, the only one getting awards, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I could edit that one out, but I'll leave it in. I'll let that one slide. <laughs> leave but, it in, come on. Do you think the model, like the extra the extratempestrial model, is one that's ready to be discussed in a serious way for the general public when they're still struggling to grasp the idea of there's something else other than us, more technologically advanced. Yeah, absolutely. And and your your uh, personal account earlier was that before we were recording or after the conversation you had with your colleague? Uh, it may have been. No, it was it was after. It was after. Okay. Yeah, so the listeners heard that. And and I think what you said is important. It's a different way of starting the conversation. If it's just like, yeah, I believe in aliens. In one ear, out the other. But if if you articulate something that piques their interest, is maybe different, is more understandable. And I've heard that from so many people. They're like, I just, I don't get how aliens would look so much like us and travel all the way here and just pick us up and fly home. Uh, but there's so much about this extra tempestual model that's intuitive that makes sense that now you can maybe have a conversation with people you couldn't have otherwise, like you just said. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we are going in a, a good direction. And, you know, really, we owe so much to to Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal. I always forget the other person. Helene name. Cooper. Yeah, she was actually the first author on that, I believe. Uh, but the New York Times article in 2017 that that really blew open this conversation, and you could tell instantly the, the impact that it had. I started using it instantly. I was at a retirement party, and and somebody heard about you know the research I'd been doing because I started writing this first book in 2012, way before UFOs were real. Um, and so by 2017, when I'm getting ready to publish this book and have everything put together, I can now have a different conversation with people than I could have in 2012 or even 2016 for that matter. And since then, there's just been more and more and more. And it's too bad that it's not reaching beyond. I think I think it is actually. I, I was interviewed yesterday um, for a TV news segment um, by Al Arabi, who broadcasts throughout the Middle East and North Africa, asking about NASA and and they're getting them getting involved, asking about the congressional hearings and things. So that the information is getting out beyond the US too. What people do with it at that point is a whole different question. But I think it's important to to let people know this is real. And I feel like we're at that point. And then the question becomes who are they? Where are they coming from? Or when are they coming from? And and yeah, I think people are ready to have a conversation about this time travel model. Unfortunately, many of their brains were ruined by Back to the Future and, and other horribly <laughs> made movies about time travel, but there are good ones too. There are ones that kind of adhere to the laws of physics as we understand them. Obviously, these vehicles don't adhere to the laws of physics as we understand them. So there's going to be uh, a revolution in our, our understanding and use of, of technologies. Almost everyone agrees there has to be a unification of general relativity and quantum mechanics, this sort of quantum gravity. 
uh, theory because we just we don't know how to, to fit those two together. Once that happens and this becomes reality, we're going to have to talk about it. And it almost feels like this recent rise in the the prolificness, if that's a word, of this model is a part of that conversation for a reason. We have to get people thinking about other interpretations. We have to get people thinking about that potential um, explanation. Like, what if this is our future? What does that mean for the way we conceptualize time and space, the way we conceptualize society and, and interactions between individuals from different time periods. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit harder and I've definitely found that over the last three years, um, because people don't innate that people don't understand the block universe model. They don't understand time in a way that allows them to conceptualize just how this could happen and how easy it would be and what implications there are or what non-implications where we don't have to worry about the grandfather paradox. We don't have to worry about bootstrap paradoxes and all of these things that were hangups for people so much that I discussed much more in my first book for anybody that wants more information on that. Cause I really don't want to explain the block universe for the thousandth time right now. Um, so I, I think even with just a base level knowledge of where we are now, like we can't know what technology we're going to have a hundred years from now. We can't under, we can't know what it's going to be like once we do unify general relativity and quantum mechanics, but we can know where we are now. And all I can do as an author of these publications is to give an indication of this is where we are. This is how we got here. Um, and if these beings are from the future, we can connect those those dots as well. Um, but beyond that, we're still limited in our own understanding of time. We know it's an emergent phenomenon. We know there's something more fundamental that time emerges from. We just don't know what that is yet. So we're all stuck with the same limitations. But the more we can talk about this as a real possibility, I think the more we're going to be able to really set the stage for that future that's yet to come. If, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator, or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services, with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast, or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So, if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. 
You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5. That's Z-E-N dot AI slash UFO and the number five the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. When someone goes out and picks up their copy of the Extra Tempestrial Model, whether it's audiobook, Kindle or paperback, hardback, um, take your pick, what do you want them to take away from it at the end? Uh, that's a good question. I guess the same thing I took away from it. Because I, I, I didn't know what I would find when I decided to write this book. And, and that's part of the abductive approach. You just put everything out there and, and see what see what sticks to the wall. You know, throw all the spaghetti and see what sticks. Um, but the main takeaway for me, I think, is that the the future seems to be for the most part um loving empathetic you know it, there seems to be um a, a dissolution of a lot of our religious political animosities um of course we're only seeing a select few individuals that come back and that's not a representative sample and there's other issues involved with that as well but it's more about the conscious connection that people have with these beings. And yeah, you have the ones that don't, um, but the the majority, they, they want more interaction. Whitley Strieber used to go out behind his house and walk out calling for them, begging for them to come back and interact with them. And once you have that experience, once you feel that, that, that deeper connection to a, a higher a more evolved consciousness. I, I think that's the main thing that I wasn't expecting to find that I did. It's almost like, like Nietzsche's God is dead. You know, once God's dead, we can move beyond all of these religious squabbles that have led to all of these wars and, and genocides and, and the politics that, that run hand in hand with those. And, and what was really cool actually is um, I wish I would have read this book before I published my last book i just read it a couple weeks ago but joe joseph mcmonagall's book the ultimate time machine he he says on page i think it's 174 that by the mid-century 21st century the one that we're in now it will be commonly understood that ufos are time machines he says that in his book and he's remote viewing the future you know and he's a vetted remote viewer he was number one in the Stargate program in 1978, he was the beginning of this. And I, I think even that like Vecna character in Stranger Things might be based off of 001, which was him essentially. But he's remote viewing the near future and the year 3000. And already by the year 3000, if we can take seriously what he says, and he acknowledges that roughly, you know, 70 to 80% of what he says or remote views proves to be reality and this has been tested over and over and over over multiple decades um but it's cool that he said by the middle of this century we'll know their time machines we'll know their future humans would have loved to included that in my chapter one uh deep dive into who else has said this idea over the last 100 years or so but by the year 3000 we we resolve a lot of ecological problems a lot of social problems transportation problems we start to build cities in a way that makes sense rather than based around cars. You, you're much better at it over there in the UK and and, and Europe. Uh, but we suck at it here. We're, our cities are horrible and they're stupid and it makes no sense. 
So by the year 3000, we sort those things out. We have social reforms. Our prison system is completely different. It almost doesn't even exist. Um, the political system. And, and like you were saying, you know, we like to think of this more harmonious existence. That does seem to be the case on some level in the human future. And, and that was something I, I took away from it that, that I was excited about. I, I won't be a part of that future. I'll be long dead way before it. But it gives me hope for humanity, I guess. And, and that was positive. Before some listener questions, just let me ask you then, if future Michael Masters could come back from the year 2042, so let's give us 20 years, and it could tell you what the human race has learned about UFOs in that time, what do you think he would say to you? I mean, I have so many biases in answering that question. It's uh, it's impossible to say. Um, but, I mean, that's pretty much mid-century, 21st century. So I'm just going to uh, divert to Joe McMonagle with that one and say... We've learned our time machines. They're time machines, yeah. I'll let him answer that question for me. Okay, it seems... That, I'm not a remote viewer. <laughs> I wish I was. It seems like it'd be super cool future doctor masters could be you never know there's no time like that's the present. true yeah actually yeah. i say there's no time like the present there may be a time like the future so you never know um, <laughs> that's true so listener questions lots were sent in so i'm sorry if i don't get to yours uh, some of them were in the body of the interview and others were kind of you sent in similar ones and we start off with uh, malcolm and metal matt both asked a very similar question if these beings are aware of our capabilities why would they be exposing themselves to us? For example, the Tic Tacs, they seem to know or they should know that we can track them on radar with, you know, satellites and such. Why aren't they observing us in a more stealthy way? Yeah, well, they do that as well. Um, and in fact, it seems uh, I got, I've had this question proposed in a similar way about the lights. They've got all this grand technology. Why do they need lights on the outside? And, and I think the lights have something to do with the manipulation of space-time um, from many different things I've, I've seen. Um, but then you have things like the aerial school encounter, for instance, uh, the Rendlesham Forest, where it almost seems like the craft uh, had a, a, a malfunction of sorts, and it had to come down and they fix it. Uh, both describe very similar things. Beans moving around, hovering, um, seem like they're making repairs to the craft. So if there is some sort of cloaking mechanism, maybe that breaks down in these situations where they have to fix a problem with their cloaking mechanism or some other thing. And in the aerial school encounter, uh, the children describe it as sort of disappearing and reappearing in the sky. That could be an aspect of them entering that temporal space because that's what we'd expect of a time machine. Or it could have something to do with that cloaking mechanism breaking down and exposing them in different places as it's sort of on the skits or whatever. It could also be, and this would seem to be indicated by where we are socio-politically with all of this, that they want us to know. It's time for us to know. And that's been said over and over again uh, especially by those who are in military, that it's not up to us to tell the people about them. It's up to them when we tell them. And they and that would seem to indicate that they know more. They have more information because they know when this is going to happen already because in the block universe model, it already has for them. 
So I think we're getting close to the time when we do finally get to know, and maybe they're sort of letting down their guard a little bit because they want us to be talking about this in preparation for this final disclosure or whatever. That's that's my hope, at least. Some of the children at Ariel also mentioned that when the, the craft had landed, it looked like one of the beings was stuck in a loop. They could see it running and it was going back and then same part again and again, like yeah. you talk about that temporal space. Yeah. Maybe the being's not actually doing that. It's just what they're seeing because of where they are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I talk about that again with, um, it was the one in the UK, Manchester, UK. I forget her name. Linda Jones, I think was her name, where that same, that same sort of thing happened with this manipulation of space time in and around these craft. And that was a big focus of this last book is that, that space-time manipulation aspect of it, talking about how put-offs research, um, but also the G-forces, which is something I neglected to put in the, f- the first book, is if they're manipulating space-time, us as an outside observer sees this thing do a 90-degree turns very, very quickly, but within the frame of reference of that craft, it could be a very slow stop and reacceleration. It's just our flawed perception outside the temporal reference frame of this craft itself. So there, there's a lot of things like that, that I think we need to take into consideration um, when, when talking about not just their ability to move in and out of time, but how they can manipulate space and time in and around these ships. And the, the aerial school is a good example of that. I won't lie. Sometimes a DeLorean going 88 miles an hour does seem much simpler. So uh, <laughs> that's one for the Back to the Future What's fans. What's a flex capacitor, though? You can explain a flex capacitor to everybody. It, that was where they could just cut it off and say, yeah, Doc figured this out. We don't have to explain it. Egg on <laughs> I your saw face DeLorean the other years. day and thought the same thing. Was you that? never know. That could be egg on your face in 20 years' time when yeah, they come down true. and say, look. Oh, no, that's true. I got to be careful what I say. <laughs> you just stick some garbage in this flux capacitor and it lets you go. That's, that's yeah. it. Um, Paul Smith had a really good question that surely if they've discovered time travel, it would make more sense to go back and give us technology to aid a faster evolution that would then also increase their future capabilities, which is an interesting yeah. idea. Or is the potential that by having already done that, mankind used it for destruction and not the benefit of mankind and, and right. they're kind of trying to put that right or at least fix it given thinking about that I, that makes me think of did we get the technology from roswell crashes and other crashes that have happened throughout time and they're almost trying to work that back a little bit yeah absolutely um and and actually a friend of mine he, he was at the esalen institute uh down in california this last week as well uh, Hussein Ali Agrama, and he's, he's a cultural anthropologist actually at the University of Chicago, and I'm allowed to finally talk about him. I've known him for three years, but he was kind of being cautious around this UFO question, but he has some great ideas related to this, and he he sort of discusses that exact same thing, and he even coined a term for it, and I always screw it up, and I hope he's not listening because uh, – I literally had him repeat it like seven times because I screwed it up in our talk too. It's like a super technological singularity or something. We have people going to the future and bringing technology back in time. It's not even theirs going back, but they can go to the future and bring information back that then becomes a part of that future relative to those people. So, you know, Roswell could be an example of that too. And we, we call this the bootstrap paradox and it's not a paradox and we need to stop calling them these, especially in the block universe, because they don't exist. Um, but it doesn't matter 
if that technology made its way to Roswell in 1947 and say it came from the year 2300, um, it was always going to do that. It was always going to be there. And we eventually make the thing in the year 2400 that then goes back. And nobody created it. The people in the past were gifted this technology. The people in the future didn't create it because it was the result of the reverse engineering of that machine. But it doesn't matter if there's no creator. It still exists and it's always existed as part of this, this cyclic loop in space-time, you know, these connections and block time, this bridge, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I think the other part of that question, it's funny we're just talking about flex capacitors, is sort of the Back to the Future 2 model where they they go back and uh, Biff gives himself like a, a bunch of results of sporting events that he can bet sports on. Sports almanac, yeah. Yeah, sports almanac. And he creates this dystopian future and then they're trying to fix that. You know, th those scenarios only play out in the context of changing the past and we can't change the past. That's that It's written as it is. And I, I give a number of examples of why and how that is the case both logically and as, as it's understood by philosophers and physicists, because philosophers have been discussing time way longer than physicists have. So we have to include them in the conversation as well. Um, but there's a lot of reasons that can't happen as far as fixing something, unless you always fixed it or avoided something that was always going to not happen, in which case it can. And if that sounds complicated, just read the book because I don't really <laughs> have any other way to explain it right now. I would recommend reading the book or listening to the book anyway, as some people like to do. I'm, I'm yeah, a reader. I'm a fan of audiobooks. Yeah. yeah, I had the audiobook of this fr from yourself, but I'll be picking up the, the copy as well, the hard copy. Um, I think Dan already has the hard copy anyway. Um, question from Joel. He asks, have you had any of the time travel hypothesis confirmed by insiders, government or military people? He, he understands you're not, you're an academic and you're not part of any secret programs, <laughs> but he'd be interested to know if, who, if and who you may be talking to in those circles. Yeah, you know, and it'd be fun to say like, you know, I've got these NDEs and I know all these top CIA officials. I don't. He's right or she. Um, I didn't hear the name. Um, but with that said, I have been contacted by people who claim to have worked very high up in government who, yes, said I am right um, and have told me things that I should have known and didn't think about but once they told me it seemed obvious and i don't know how someone who's studied this since they were eight years old could have missed something like that and how this other person could know that and tell me unless they knew something so obviously it's hard to vet people um who reach out to you but yeah i have been contacted by quite a few people and maybe even if they didn't say yeah you're right or um, uh, this is, is definitely the case. There's some indication that it's worth pursuing more. And, and that has definitely helped keep me going. Um, but no, I don't claim to have any, any top insider information or contacts. I, I got nothing. I'm, I'm flying solo here and it's, it's frustrating at times, but, and, and I'm bound to get things wrong. You know, even if this is right, I'm bound to get things wrong because I can't know the reality of the situation, like someone who does know the reality of the situation. So, but my stance is theoretical. 
um, I'm, I'm making inferences based on patterns and logic, but I'm, I'm bound to get things wrong in that process. But uh, yeah, there have been encouraging words from people who claim to have been high up in positions of government. Without giving too much away, can you can you elaborate or expand on something that you, you talk about you overlooked and then has been pointed out to you as you should have noticed this and then you've been able to go, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What I just said, and I try to work this into as many conversations as possible now because it, it makes sense and I, I completely spaced it was the G-forces thing. It was an individual who claims to have been retired, so he's later life and, you know, probably runs less risk and, and didn't tell me anything beyond um, you. I think you should consider this thing and explain that whole G forces thing. That's they're manipulating space time to the extent that what they're experiencing is different than what we see. And it's how they can run circles around us. That's how they can get back to the cap point with, uh, you know, the, the Nimitz case instantly and, and, and fly at such tremendous speed is they're just slowing us down. We we become um, the human trying to swat the fly. The fly sees us way faster, has time to just slowly fly away. But to us, it's like, how did I miss that? You know, it moves so fast. And so I talk about what I like to refer to this as biorelativity, because there is clearly this difference among species with regard to how they perceive time. A, a barn swallow flying through rafters. And you put a jetpack on a human and have them try to do that, even shrink them down to that size. Our brains just haven't evolved to live life fast enough to do that without smashing our faces against the rafters. So I think what they're doing is slowing us down to the extent that even if we're shooting missiles at them, they're just like, okay, that was dumb. Why are you trying to start a fight with advanced beings? But they can just slowly move out of the way because we perceive time differently. So as we perceive them outside of their reference frame, that instant acceleration, deceleration, 80,000 feet to sea level in like 1.76 seconds or whatever the SU calculated it to be, that was told to me by someone who claimed to be uh, an ex-CIA or uh, some, someone involved in government. I don't remember what it was, but it was right after my first book came out. And I was like, damn, that makes a lot of sense. How did I miss that? And how do you know that unless you actually are or were affiliated with these individuals. So again, I can't ever know, but that's that was a hole in my argument that was filled by someone who claimed to have had direct knowledge. Um, question expanding slightly on what you mentioned on the, the Tic Tacs uh, from Tree of Life. Uh, Tree of Life says, thank you for your thought-provoking books, Dr. Masters. You've done a great job of explaining the various paradoxes in ways a layperson could understand. Question, what's your take on why time travellers would spend so much time lurking around our Navy and Navy ships? Ehrman reported they saw the Tic Tacs daily. We hear from people like Lou Elizondo. These incursions are still happening now, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. hovering there for hours. What information of value could they be gathering in that time? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think because war and destruction seems to be so much a part of so much a part of of the warnings that come the the uh, eschatological I'm just gonna use that word all the time now because it's fun to say um, these end times prophecies that clearly is related to our military technology that exists today uh, the same thing with the UFOs 
in uh, nuclear silos at Malmstrom and Mino Air Force Base. I talk about those in the book in this context as well. It almost seems to me like what we seem to them is a, a bunch of three-year-olds with knives and firecrackers. And for them to know if something happens that they could try to stop before it happens. Because again, you can't change the past once something's already happened. And I discussed this a lot in my most recent book with the the nuclear silos um, and different timelines, the multiverse versus the block universe, is, is maybe they're just monitoring us closely the same way you do on the 4th of July. We always go to these 4th of July celebrations and it's this massive horde of people and, and fireworks are like at the heart of the culture in Butte, Montana. It's insane. People spend thousands and thousands of dollars individually to just blow this stuff up. I'm not one of those people. I, I tend to try to do other things with my money, but it's still fun to watch. But then you have like 25 kids, you know, we're all drinking beer. The parents are watching, but then there comes a point where you're like, all right, we should, we should watch closer because that's a, that's a big firework and they seem to not be paying attention enough and it almost seems like that same vibe with them that they're they're just keeping an eye on us because we've gotten to the point why would they care before when we had spears and and bows and arrows we're we're not going to destroy the planet that they might inherit with that but then once we get nuclear capabilities where we could not just destroy ourselves but destroy this planet they also call home i think that would definitely make them watch a little bit closer and, and may help explain why so many are seen in association with military vehicles and ships. It's getting, it's getting late in the conversation for me to ask you this, and I think I might hurt my head a little bit, and I'm going to try and explain this easily for myself. Um, you've mentioned a few times that we can't go back and change the past because it would have to have already happened. So, for example, if I am here in the future, and or which is my present, obviously, and I look at a bit of ground that is untouched and I slap uh, that UFO podcast sticker on it in the past, would that sticker not then be there in the future when it wasn't there at the time it was my present, if that makes sense? So if I go back to that bit of ground, it's empty, and I put a sticker in the past on that bit of ground, assuming no one ever moves it, and then I go back to the back to the future, I'm going to get that stuck in my head now, I go back to my present, yeah. Would that sticker not now then be there and therefore I've, I've affected the past or would it have just always had to have been there? Uh, yeah, if that sticker wasn't there, you didn't ever put it there in the past for it to be there. And in and, and, and reverse, if you did go back in the past and put that sticker there, again, assuming nobody came and took it, it will always have been there. You will see it and be like, why is that sticker there? That's weird. Who put that there? But if it was always you that did it, you will always go back. And it's kind of a broader example is if you visit yourself in the past. Mm -hmm. um, if you go, if you have a memory of interacting with yourself, an older version of yourself at age eight, let's say, and the person that came back from the future is 45. When you turn 45, there's absolute certainty that you will go back and visit your eight-year-old self because you will have always already done that. Those two moments are connected in space-time. And there's nothing that can change that because in the block universe, everything that can and will ever happen already did, already exists in this massive four-dimensional block of space-time. So you can't think of it as, well, there could be a change. 
And and I I would direct people toward the last chapter of my book. I can't remember her name right now, but she's a, a philosopher at a university in Australia who who explains this perfectly. It's one of my favorite explanations of of how backward time travel would work in the block universe. And 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 essentially what she's saying. I also saw. <laughs> I also cite speaking of Marvel. Um, who's the Incredible Hulk? And that Dr. Um, Bruce Banner. Yeah, Bruce Banner. A, a quote by him from, um, God, one of their later movies. I can't remember what it is right now, which says the same thing. And, and essentially, the, the best way of thinking of it is that anything you do in the past doesn't change the future. When you get to the future, everything's the same because those moments are all structured. They're already in existence. And anything you do isn't going to elicit an effect. It's just going to be what you always have done at that time. And any change that occurred, any effect from that had already happened before you ever went back to do it. And and that's the essence of the block universe. And, and it is possible. And it was pointed out to me very shortly after my first book came out. Um, that I didn't talk about the multiverse. I didn't talk about um, the possibility that there's other timelines. And because A, we don't, uh, they, there's no proof that they exist. And B, there might not be any way of studying them, even if they do. So to take a conservative approach and, and in writing a book that already challenges my job so much and my, my career, you know, taking that, that risk, I needed to keep everything rooted in the best evidence we have now. It would have been fun to speculate wildly about the multiverse and these different timelines, but the the consensus among physicists today is that the block universe is real. And and it's easier to understand time travel in the context of the block universe. The 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 multiverse actually makes it really weird and that's when you have these paradoxes. Once you interject change into the question, all of these paradoxes that we've we've learned about through mass media and movies come into play. In the block universe, they don't. So it's just a simpler model in whole. And and I think um, I, I I don't know. I feel like it's intuitive and it's very understandable. But I've also been reading about it since I was in high school, so it's just in there now. But but. I, I, and, it, and it should be for everybody. Everybody should look into, you know, read a book by Paul Davies, for instance. Read Kip Thorne's work on 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 time and space. Um, Stephen Hawking, obviously, even though he's a staunch critic of backward time travel, he's sort of the guru of time. So read about it. It's fascinating. And it does hurt your brain. But I don't know. I guess I'm masochistic in a way because I've always enjoyed that. Um, the question from Dave talks about the very famous now slide nine that Luis Elizondo and Hal Putov have talked about. Is that something you're aware of? What's it called? Slide nine. It was part of a presentation from ATIP and it was a, I'll bring it up just so I get the, the wording correctly here, but it was a DOD's threat scenario. It was ATIP. It was one of their slides in a presentation and it reads that the science exists for an enemy of the United States to manipulate both physical and cognitive environments in order to penetrate US facilities influence decision makers and compromise national security and it talks about psychotronic weapons cognitive human interference or interface 
um, penetration of solid surfaces uh, and other things we would associate with unidentified aerial phenomena. And he just yeah. wonders, do you think those sort of, sorts of activities are potentially also linked to future humans? You know, I I don't have the knowledge base to answer that question. Um, that's undoubtedly going to be my next rabbit hole. But for now, I I don't I don't know enough about it to comment. Uh, so I apologize to the the viewer for not being able to give an answer to that. That's all right. Dave's got plenty of questions. Let me follow up with another one. Uh, and Dave also asks, do you have a profile for future humans in terms of appearance, craft, tech? And if you do, what is that? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't really because it, it's changeable. It'd be like saying, do you have a profile for modern humans with regard to uh, their physiology, their technology? You can you can take random samples of people from all over the world, including those yet to be contacted Amazonian tribes, and then lay out all of their technology, look at their physical form, and then you try to say, all right, what's the average human in their physiology and technology? You just can't do it because we're so variable. And I feel like that variation will persist into the future, but then it's also complicated, or not complicated, but that variation is added to by temporal variation. Obviously, someone coming back from 100 years in the future is going to have a different physical form and different technology than someone... 300 years in the future, 3,000 years in the future, 20,000 years in the future. So if that technology continues to exist and they're coming from multiple different time periods spread throughout the hominin future, that adds to all of the existing variation that exists in each of those time periods. Um, so it's not really an answer to the question, but I think it's important to acknowledge that because it, it needs to be taken into account. And it's a big part of you know how it's hard to project our humanness into the future. When people used to ask me, you know, how long will it take for us to become the greys? Well, there's, there's sex variation, there's geographic variation, there's age variation. All of those things need to be taken into account. We just don't have enough data from these future humans to be able to do that. So I, I never felt comfortable answering that question. No, that's fair. And final question from Newman. Uh, Newman asks, and he's given me some context behind this as well, clearly having already read the book. Um, the question is, James Fox, the director of the Phenomenon and upcoming Virginia case, Moment of Contact, um, stated that his sources claimed that at least 1% of the human population are human-alien hybrids. Likewise, former CIA John Ramirez, who's also been interviewed on the podcast, has I watched stated that one. Yes. I watched that podcast. It was fantastic. John's a really nice guy. Um, yeah, it seemed like it. He's also heard this claim within a briefing he attended. In light of your extraterrestrial model, can you give any opinion on the statement that hybrids are actually already walking among us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love that question. And and as people who have read either of my books know, and this uh, listener, uh, what was what was his name again? Newman. Newman. Like yeah. yeah, okay. Um <laughs> it's so hard for me not to do the Newman. Jerry Seinfeld yeah. Newman scream there, but I'm I'm holding back. I'm exercising free will at the moment. Um it's it's important to acknowledge the biological classification of species concept. That if we're talking about hybrids, and, and obviously you could make the case that an advanced extraterrestrial 
species would be able to maybe figure out a way to combine our genome. A simpler explanation is that they're already us and they already share a genome and we can already reproduce with them. So these hybrids, I think, are a good indication of this future human model, this extratempestrial model, because if you can reproduce two species uh, or alleged separate species and create viable offspring that can go on to reproduce itself, they are by definition the same species. Um, and I've, I've also met these people, you know, from a less uh, nerdy scientific standpoint, I've met a lot of people whose grandmother had a strange pregnancy that she couldn't explain. These people often have uh, psychic powers. They, they have telepathy. They can remote view easier than other people. And you start to hear enough of these and you're like, well, damn, maybe this is happening. Why is the obvious question. What's the end game? Is it some sort of experiment? But what's cool about it is it indicates that some of these psi capabilities are heritable characteristics. They're not learned. That if you have an individual from, say, 15,000 years in the future that's already developed telepathy and that ability to communicate in a, a very interesting way, and they somehow reproduce with or interject their genome into someone from this time period, but then someone two generations down from them still has that capability. That's fascinating. That's really indicative of some evolutionary aspect of our consciousness and our brains that, that we don't yet have. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I hope that's true. I mean, obviously, how do you test that? How do you figure out if 1% of the human population is a hybrid, but having met these people and seen them demonstrate their abilities, I, I would tend to believe that more. And I use the word belief because I don't have a way of, of testing this scientifically, but I, I think there's something to that. Maybe. Well, look, we have covered a lot of ground and thank you to everyone who sent in questions and apologies to those who didn't get theirs answered this time round. I definitely recommend you pick up your copy of The Extra Tempestrial Model. I'm still working my way through the rest of the audiobook. Um, how can people follow you, Michael, and also get a copy of your work? Um, I mean, unfortunately, Amazon is the best option. And I say unfortunately because they sort of took over the book they, they took over everything. Who am I kidding? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but if you have a local bookshop, have, have them get it. I, I do also distribute through Ingram. So it's a wholesale. I don't make as much money, but I'd like to support uh, local bookstores. So talk to talk to your local bookstore and try to get them to get it. If they can't or they won't or they hate the idea and, and tell you to piss off and go away, then go to Amazon. It's available there, as Andy pointed out. Uh, ebook, audiobook, and paperback. Um, as far as following, I have a website. Um, I just designed a new logo that's been fun for me. Future Human nice. Time Machine. There's a, there's the same number of letters in each one, so it fit well. I haven't made like t-shirts. I mostly just have these for my friends, but it's also on a t-shirt. I don't know. I, like I had that. to do something different because you remember the faces that I had before? The like... Mm -hmm chimp face and i was like i can't use that for the new book so i had to design something new so um but yeah i don't know twitter facebook all the same stuff wherever you follow other people i'm probably on there somewhere making full of myself so 
come join well, the all party. Those, all those links will be back in the description for the podcast as well. So thank you very much for your time, Dr. Masters. Absolutely. It's always always a pleasure. Um, speak to you again soon. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your